0: See, this is the thing that I struggle with. How do you get from the wanting to do it to to the actual action of doing it? (laughs) So I loved today's episode. And if you're anything like me and have issues forming positive new habits, then you'll love this episode too. Today's guest is one of the world's leading experts in habits and is passionate about translating specific evidence into simple actionable strategies to help improve health, wellness, mindset and lifestyle related habits long-term. With a PhD in habit change, an adjunct professor at Bond University, plus an accredited dietitian, she's also recently published a book, The Habit Revolution, episode 105, Dr. Gina Cleo. The One Moment Please podcast. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast Dr Gina Cleo. Oh, great to be here Fiona. <laughs> I was reading your book The Habit Revolution. It's a great read. It's actually really easily written for a bunch of clinical information, I would say you've written it like a like a layperson. Oh, um can like me. You.
1: I'm obviously the layperson.
0: <laughs> I that means so
1: much because that was like really my mission is to do that because I've written clinically for my entire career so to switch yeah. it over to that is was like my number one goal so yay thank you was it hard was it hard and I don't want to say dumbing it down but restructuring yeah, yeah. it so it was not as clinically dry and yes and no like I yeah. I wrote it clinically, actually, like the first time around, and then I went through and I changed the language and then I added anecdotes and I added story. And, and I, as I did that, I was sort of becoming more vulnerable in like the language and I liked the process. So it was, yeah. it was okay.
0: Yeah. So this is all about the neuroscience and your research
1: behind habit forming. That's right. And breaking and changing and self-compassion and all the things that are around, I guess, behavior change as a whole. Yeah.
0: Well, I find this fascinating because I struggle with behavior change, particularly with positive habits. So Mm -hmm. I love, I'm (laughs) so excited about this conversation. What made you want to go into this area of study in the first place? Because you've done a bachelor of uh, bioscience and then you did a master's in nutrition and dietetics. I did, yes. So I say that right yeah
1: that's right you did yep so I was a dietitian a clinical dietitian yeah. for years and I had a private practice and I worked in different hospitals and I found that I was able to help people short term only and that they would end up you know we didn't have a knowledge deficit people know that exercising is good for us we know that eating fruits and vegetables is going to help us live longer and healthier and happier and it wasn't a knowledge issue I felt like people a lot of times knew what to do they just needed someone to hold their hand and guide them in how to make those changes and we're not trained like that as health professionals Mm -hmm. you know doctors aren't trained like that dietitians certainly aren't and a lot of the other allied health aren't either so I became really fascinated with this idea of sustainable change how do we like start something and actually achieve it long term rather than live this life of like yo-yoing i also totally sucked with my own like discipline and self-control i found that i would sort of plan to do one thing say i plan to get up and exercise and i'd end up you know scrolling on facebook marketplace for two hours and missing my pilates class altogether and i was like what is wrong with me like why is this happening And so that's why I became really fascinated with the brain.
0: Talk to me about the actual study that you did, because there was three groups within that study. So can you sort of go into that a little bit more detail? Because then that'll help the listeners understand the research and behind it.
1: Yeah. So I conducted several studies, but the, the primary one, I guess the first one that was published was a randomized control trial, which basically means we get a bunch of people and we randomize them into different groups. And one group had a intervention that was all about creating new habits one group was about breaking old habits and one was just a waitlist control so they were like the ones that we compared doing nothing with and the premise of the study was to look at can people lose weight and keep that weight off long term because a lot of research shows that people will lose weight on a study or on a weight loss program but then as soon as the program's finished they will regain it back again normally with some interest, we call it the Nike swoosh of weight regain. And I wanted to see if I can bend that curve, if I can just like keep habits sustainable long-term. So the habit forming group were given 10 things to do, and they were sort of like pretty basic things like make sure you drink plenty of water, pack a healthy snack when you leave the house, you know, walk as many steps as you can, that kind of stuff. The habit breaking group, we it was so radical. We gave them an intervention called Do Something Different, where we would send them a text message on random days of the week at random times to do random things. And it was like things like listen to a different radio station than you normally would, uh, don't watch TV tonight, drive a different way to work, call a long lost friend, like nothing to do with diet and exercise. And what we found was that, interestingly, after 12 weeks, so they did the programs for 12 weeks, both groups lost the same amount of weight on the program. So habit forming or habit breaking. The really interesting part was that a year after the study had finished, so we'd, we'd finished all contact with the participants, they'd continued to lose weight. It wasn't just that they you know, stopped losing weight or that they even regained the weight like you would expect they actually continued to lose weight. And that was a breakthrough in science because we've never seen anything like that before. Oh, the thing that was really cool is when we, when we interviewed the participants at the, like a year later, they were like, I didn't even realize that I still did all this stuff because it's part of my life now. It's automatic and it's habitual. And that was when we realized that, yeah, it's definitely because of the habit change that they've continued to uh, achieve these outcomes.
0: I can understand it in the group where they were given these repetitive um, habits Mm. to do. I don't understand it in the (laughs) random one because to me, if you've stopped it in the random one, then they're no longer doing the random things potentially. Mm. And how does that work in terms of the weight
1: loss side of things. I know it's so trippy. Okay. When you think of your habits, think of them like a web and where one habit feeds off another. So let's say you get up and, the, and you get dressed, you go to work, you drive the same way. When you get to work, you might make yourself a coffee, grab a croissant, check your emails. And there's sort of a cascade of events that happens when you break that cycle. You start to then become mindful rather than reactive, rather than just doing what you've always done. You actually start to make a decision. So let's say that like another morning you're going to work. Now you drive a different way to work. Now you're activating different parts of your brain. You're activating the prefrontal cortex more, which is your logical side of the brain. And it's not the the cascade of events is disrupted. So now when you get to work, you get to think, do I actually want a coffee? Do I really feel like a croissant today? And you become more mindful of the whole sequence of events. So doing the random things
0: actually breaks the current neural 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 pathways of habit. Yeah,
1: yeah it doesn't break a specific habit so you can't be like i want to break my habit of phone scrolling so i'm going to drive a different way to work today but what it does do is it disrupts the natural rhythms of the day so it sort of makes you more behaviorally flexible just because we live most of our life in autopilot up to 70 percent of everything we do every day is exactly what we did yesterday and what we did the day before like we just live in this very subconscious state Whereas doing something different just makes you more mindful so that you can make more intentional decisions. So it's all about, it's all about mindfulness and intention. Yeah. Rather than just doing what we've always done. That's right.
0: Did you think that that, so out of the three groups, did you predict, did you hypothesize that that group was also going to lose weight? Absolutely not. (laughs) Really, so that was that no. was a surprise element. Okay, completely. So I thought, I, can, I can understand. <laughs> I can yeah, understand no. the yeah the other, the other one. They are we giving them good.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, they were proper guinea pigs, um and it was fascinating that it works and it taught us a lot about the brain actually and about the the sequences of the things that we do and how we do just find ourselves really mindless in what we do. Like, I, like so many people say to me, I plan to not do this, and I was halfway through it before I realized that I was doing it again whether it's drinking a glass of wine or scrolling on our phone, because we initiate our habits very mindlessly. Yeah, the scrolling on the phone is a big one these days. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it 100% guilty of that one.
1: (laughs) You're not alone. (laughs) It's the number one. It's the number one most common unwanted habit is phone scrolling.
0: How did your research, because I do want to sort of touch on habits and the brain and PTSD, but you ended up with PTSD. Are you are you happy to talk about that? Because I am interested in regards to how your research helped help you deal with that.
1: Of course, I am an open book, yeah. What did you want to know specifically, so- like how, how <laughs> I came through it or how it happened or where do we start? Well, <laughs> probably how it happened first. I, yeah. I want
0: you to lead the conversation so you can sort of divulge how much you want to divulge. Um, but yeah, basically what happened and then mm. how you went, like the resulting some factors of that.
1: Mm. Yeah, sure. So it was probably the second year into my PhD where I met this guy who I just thought was the man of my dreams. And we were together for six years. And in the last year of our relationship, something just didn't feel right. We felt really disconnected, but it was also COVID. So when I would say to him, hey, something doesn't feel right, like, are we okay? He'd say, yeah, we're perfectly fine. You know, I'm just going through a bout of depression. And it made sense. His work was impacted. His life was impacted. He couldn't see his family, who he was really close to because they lived interstate. And he was also very affirming of the relationship. So he'd still say, like, I can't wait to come home to you and you're the best wife ever and all of this stuff. Right. So we'd gotten married um, six months. We'd been married six months at this stage. So it was like icky for six months. We still got married. And because he really wanted to, he kept pushing like, no, I want you to be my wife. Blah, blah, blah. So we got married and then six months into our marriage i found out that he was having a full-blown affair so i was in the kitchen one day and i was baking and his computer happened to be on the kitchen bench and i just flicked it open to have a look at a recipe and he just left for the shops and what was popping up on his computer screen was a live text message exchange that he was having with a prostitute that he was just about to meet with And he asked her for photos, she sent them. He replied, you know, making comments about the photos. They talked about finances. And then he said to her, I'm five minutes away. And my world shattered. I, I hyperventilated. I fainted. I just like, my brain was cracking. I was like, this can't be happening. Like we're, we just got married. He's so affirming of the relationship. We're madly in love. He's my person. This has been six years. We're just about to try for a baby. And it was truly a shell shock moment. When I came to, again, I had like another look through his computer and I found hundreds more. So it wasn't just this isolated event. There were, it was probably at least a year where this was going on. And oh my gosh, I just, I I took screenshots of everything. I sent them to my mom for safekeeping And I knew that he'd be home soon because he'd only booked for 15 minutes. And when he came home, I was sitting on the kitchen bench and I was just very calmly said to him, is there anything you need to tell me? I wanted to rage like I was screaming inside, but I knew that I couldn't because he'd run away. Right. Like if you I didn't want to be scary or intimidating. So very calmly said, is there anything you need to tell me? He denied it. And then I said, well, what about this? And I showed him all the photos, the text messages, the emails, the Google map history, the bank statements. You know, I discovered so much in that time. And You were very busy for those 15 minutes. Oh yeah, I went into proper fact finding mode. I was like yeah. I was using my research skills, right? I was like, oh, I am, I know exactly what to do here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and so goodness. I was I was also completely in fight or flight. So I was in the survival mode. And yeah. you know, it's one thing not to be able to predict our future. I think a lot of people can can learn to be comfortable with ambiguity. It's a whole other thing to not be able to make sense of your past and i was fact finding because i needed to make sense of what was happening what was going on and was my life was i living a story that i was just telling myself and it wasn't actually real like was the wedding real like i don't know what's going on yeah it warped your whole sense of reality and Entirely. i would
0: imagine your whole sense of decision making you know if yeah. you trusted this person you made decisions yeah
1: then it's a whole thing your whole self-judgment is in them in question completely and i did think i said to myself if i was so wrong about this what else am i wrong about and because Mm. i was so sure that he was faithful because he was so affirming of the relationship i was then i doubted everything i doubted that the sky was even blue i sat my parents down and i was like Proof to me or my parents. How do I even know that? I was like, do we even need to brush our teeth anymore? I didn't know anything. I, I lost my ability to drive my car, to step outside the house. I developed agoraphobia, which is the fear of leaving your own house. Because nothing felt safe. Nothing felt normal. It's like, I don't know anything anymore. Like, I thought these, this place was like a, just a massage place. And it turns out to be an, an underground brothel or so it just completely broke it cracked my mind and i was bedridden for you know a really long time and um i got up one morning and i was like I, it's probably time to brush my teeth like <laughs> it's been a few days so i remember getting and going into the bathroom and going to brush my teeth and struggling being like where is my toothbrush and how do how do we do this again And if you think of your morning routine now fiona there's there's a sequence there's a flow to it you might wake up put your feet on the ground you know pull your covers back go to the bathroom do your morning routine and there's a natural flow you don't have to think too much about it i realized that i'd lost the ability to do that and i had to actually relearn my routines again and i the first day i just brushed my teeth that's all i expected of myself and then the next day i brushed my teeth and i had a shower And I remember thinking, oh, well, brushing my teeth the second day was easier than the first day, and then it was easier again the third day. And I realised that I was rewiring my brain again and that this whole idea of neuroplasticity, which I'd spoken so much about in my habit courses, is taking place in my life, and I felt quite empowered by that. So that's, I guess, the crux of the the story. How How does trauma, because...
0: Okay. So there's two elements of this question. Are there different levels of trauma or is it, is it that different things just affect people differently and therefore trauma is trauma and it affects the brain? And how does that trauma physically impact on the brain?
1: I guess trauma is our reaction to a certain event. And so we will all experience that differently to different levels, Mm -hmm. uh, to different magnitudes, for different durations, different things will trigger us. For me, every single thing that reminded me of him triggered a trauma response and i went into fight or flight a black car cuz he drove a black car the smell of coffee cuz that's how we started our day white sheridan sheets because that's what we slept on helicopters cuz he was a helicopter pilot like you like the, the sight of an asian woman because they were that was the nationality that he was biasly picking so everything would trigger fight or flight and I go into a panic attack and the thing that happens in the brain is the brain's not actually aware of the memory of something and the actual thing at the moment when it comes to trauma so what happens when somebody who's experiencing a traumatic trigger they don't know the difference between it's happening it, like it's happened a while ago or it's happening right now it feels like it's happening right now all over again And that's why there's the panic attacks and, you know, that's why like war veterans, for example, if they hear a pop of a champagne, it can trigger a trauma response in them and they feel like they're in the battlefield again. The brain doesn't make that link.
0: If you look at a brain under imaging that's got PTSD, is there any physical signs of the trauma?
1: Yeah, there are. So it's called trauma brain. (laughs) It's a thing. Mm. And essentially the prefrontal cortex, which is that logical part of our brain that sits just uh, behind our forehead, that is has got a slower or a, a reduced activation. And then we've got the amygdala, which is the emotional part of our brain that's got a higher activation. So now you're using less logical brain, more emotional brain. And this happens simultaneously. And so that's that's another reason why it's really hard to logically talk yourself out of an emotional response. You can't just say, well, yes, that is a black car, but it's not his black car. All all you're thinking is black car. It could be him. Oh, my gosh. And then your body just goes into fight or flight. So, yes, the, the brain does change. And unfortunately, it changes long term. You know, trauma brain can impact someone for the rest of their life. We can certainly do things to try to, to reverse some of those effects but trauma brain is real you know for me it's been over three years and although I've learned really well how to you know manage triggers there are still times where I get an adrenaline dump and I'm like okay like I know that the person I'm with isn't experiencing that this is a I I'm experiencing this because this is my trauma how do people
0: you mentioned an- I want to be careful. We're not giving medical advice. Everyone's independent. Everyone's individual. You've got to go speak mm. to your own medical professional. That's the legal disclaimer. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but what are some of the uh, general things that people can do to help physiologically reverse those, uh, that trauma brain?
1: Breath work is uh, really good. Doing things like meditation helps yoga, um, Finding like, like using the prefrontal cortex more. I actually did something called TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's essentially, ah, yes, I've heard have, of have it. you heard of it? Yeah, it's yeah, cool. yeah. That helped me to engage my free, prefrontal cortex again. And there's really? different, there's yeah. So, so
0: I think we should probably explain that. So, my understanding mm. of it is that they use magnets to help basically stimulate different areas of the brain I don't understand how they do it I think they put you in some sort of machine
1: yeah so Um, you're just sitting in a chair and there's a machine that's sort of placed on your head and it's all like mapped out where your different brain regions are and it taps on the area that's sort of a bit sleepy so for me it was the prefrontal cortex and it taps on that and I did I believe I did 20 sessions and it was amazing it really helped me to just think logically about things it was was, i actually remember after it after the 20 sessions because you do them back to back it's sort of five days in a row and then you take it like the weekend off and then you you go again i remember seeing something that would normally trigger me and i felt fine and i remember thinking something's missing like what's what's going on something feels weird and i was like oh i'd normally feel really anxious about this and i'm not and it was a really awesome moment to, to experience that the changes in our brain. Also, our brain is rewiring all the time. Every single day, our brain rewires. So as we rewire different responses with when we get triggered, that will be our new normal. And, and I was able to do that by myself as well, which was a really empowering thing to do.
0: How do people access the TMS? Is that through their
1: healthcare like the therapist or something like that yeah so you've got to see a doctor and then the doctor will refer you to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist will have them at the clinic I believe there's TMS machines in various hospitals but um, I went to a, a local psychiatrist in my area one of the things that you wrote in the book which I thought was very
0: interesting but also very challenging to do is there's a and i'm going to quote you here learn to sit with the discomfort. Mm. And you hear that a lot in terms of the motivational people sort of say that but to to read it in a i mean as as much as it's an easy read it is a clinical book it's fact and science based. Yeah. To have it to have it written there as a okay this is backed by science. That's a really difficult thing when you're dealing with Trauma response or um, uh, needing to rewire that brain. Mm.
1: Yeah, it sucked. <laughs> I'm not going to sugarcoat that part. <laughs> I did this. Uh, I did a lot of exposure therapy, which uh, you know is a real testament to sitting with discomfort. And how exposure therapy works is, the psychologist would bring something up that would trigger me. So let's say the the smell of coffee, for example. And it should say, I really want you to focus and think about the smell of coffee. And I would go into a hyperventilated state. My palms are sweaty. My stomachs are not, I'm heavy breathing and I'm having a panic response. And then the idea is to then stop thinking about the coffee and you focus on your body what is happening physiologically and somatically to you? And when you focus on that, you're shifting focus. You're actually using a different part of your brain. And so I would start to focus on my body. And it took me about 15 minutes the very first time I did this to de-escalate from my hyperventilated state. And then as soon I was, as I was, you know, fine again, she was like, all right, we're going again. Let's go back to the coffee. And I'm like, no, 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 I need a break. Like that was a lot. I was just in a panic attack. And she said, Gina, you don't get to choose how many triggers are out in the world. We're going again. And the second time I did it, it might've taken me 10 minutes to deescalate, then five minutes. By the end of the hour of going through this over and over again, my trigger response was seconds. And I could smell coffee again and it was fine what we're telling our brain is you can smell coffee and be safe you could smell coffee and still be alive you're not harmed you're not hurt you're okay and that is part of that sitting with the discomfort we can't run away from it you know energy doesn't just go away it just changes shape and i had to reframe it in my mind
0: talk to me about in terms of the neuroscience let's sort of more go back into to the habit side of things mm. you identified the habit loop
1: Talk me through the habit loop. So the habit loop describes that there, every single habit has three key ingredients, and it is a, a cue or a trigger, a routine, which is the habit itself, and then a reward. So the, the cue is what triggers your habit, and then the habit and the reward. So let's say, for example, each time you get home in the evening, you eat a cookie. So you get home and you eat a cookie the first time you do that a mental link is created between getting home and eating a cookie there's literally like a physical neural connection that as you repeat that your brain starts to learn that getting home means eating a cookie and that's just a sequence of behavior that you do and it happens so much so that the stronger it gets it becomes to the point where just thinking of getting home is going to prompt you to want to eat the cookie. Like you'll start salivating. You'll start imagining what the cookie tastes like, trying to do anything else. Like if anything's in your way between you and that cookie, it's like, get out of my way. It's cookie time. And the reward that you're getting from it, you know, it might be the taste of the cookies. It might be then the routine, like you're getting the reward from the routine, the sugar hit, the dopamine, the reward can be anything, but all our habits are triggered. Both, you know, the wanted and unwanted habits are all triggered by something and there are five habit triggers so it's the the time of day the place that you're in what you've just done beforehand how you're feeling emotionally so like emotional eating and your social situation or the people that you're around all our habits are triggered by one or more of these triggers
0: so like when i quit smoking i had to stop drinking beer and all my friends did at the same time so it was easier Because I associated
1: the beer with a cigarette. so Exactly. Yes, exactly right. And for some people is they, for them to quit smoking, they need to just just sit and have their coffee in a different place to where they normally do, or, you know, like make sure that they're distracted in the time that they would normally have a cigarette so that that time isn't associated with smoking anymore. But yeah, spot on.
0: Mm. I was at uni, guys, so it was a long time ago. Mum, you can stop freaking out.
1: (laughs) No judgment. How long did it take you to quit? Oh, I was only a
0: social smoker. Like I wasn't like full on, but every Mm. time we were at the pub, which was every day, I was a uni student. um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, there was, and then you'd go out and you'd smoke. So it was several. Like it was a (laughs) lot. Shouldn't have asked you that. Sorry, (laughs) Mum. But then I uh, I stopped drinking beer and now I now I don't drink at all because it, I react Ooh. to the, the histamines in it and um, I'm gluten intolerant. So there you go. I think uni uni stuffed me in terms yeah, of so did. much beer
1: with the gluten. <laughs> but look at you now. <laughs> oh, that's it, smoke free. Uh, <laughs> I want to go
0: into the difference between mind and brain because because mm-hmm. you, you, you do talk talk about that in the book. So I do want to touch yeah. on that because they are very different.
1: Yes, they are. So the mind and the brain are a unified system, but they are different. Your mind is no, actually, let's start with your brain. Your brain is a physical organ. It's at like the jelly part in your head, right? And it, it communicates between your body, your, your thoughts, your head, you feel things, you smell things. Every communication comes from your brain your mind is your thoughts your attitude your belief systems uh it's your attitudes you know your mind is a choice and the beautiful part about the synergy of this is that as the brain changes so as you create those different neural pathways and break old habits and create new habits the brain physically changes and as the brain changes the mind changes because now you're doing different things. But also as the mind changes, the brain changes. So as you start to think about things differently, have different attitudes, different values, different lifestyles, you start to reshape your brain as well, because your brain is now rewiring towards those new mindsets. So there's a a really, it's a beautiful synergy, but they are different things.
0: Why, why do we then self-sabotage if we want to do things why do we self-sabotage? Oh,
1: there's a host of reasons why we sabotage. <laughs>
0: because I'm think... the queen of self-sabotage. Yeah. Don't <laughs> and I worry. think a we, lot of people We all are. are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a lot of times I think oh, we could literally talk all day about this, but there are so many messages. Okay, go. Okay, the first one, let's go through the list. There's a lot of messaging, especially this time of year. It's like, go hard or go home. Or if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. And we can easily get swept up into this idea of what our goals should look like and what we should be achieving and how many things we should be doing. Because so-and-so on Instagram is doing it or you know your neighbor's doing this marathon so why shouldn't you do a marathon or whatever it might be but our brain is actually only capable of making up to three changes at one time so if we're trying to create too many goals we can't keep up with those things we're we're bound to fall off the wagon the other thing is i think our goals tend to be too big we tend to think that when i set a goal it's going to come with you know, this fairy is going to come and zap me with all this extra motivation, <laughs> extra <laughs> willpower, and I'm going to have more time and I'm going to be less stressed and the kids are never going to get sick and work's going to be so smooth. And I think we underestimate that life happens and there's always setbacks. The, the difference between people who just fall off the wagon and people who go off course entirely is if and when and how you get back up again. It's not waiting to monday or waiting for the new year or waiting for your birthday to pick yourself back up it's you know setbacks are part of the process and i'm going to pick myself up right now it might be i just overate but that's going to happen from time to time and that's okay i can you know eat a healthy dinner or a healthy next meal so i think that's one of the reasons the other one as well is we have competing interests you know like we might plan to get up and exercise in the mornings but we also want to sleep in and those two things are valid and they exist and I think we have to in those moments be really in touch with our values and why do I want to get up and exercise why is that more important for me how is that going to make me feel afterwards and you know changing changing the mind and the brain it takes time it takes it's a process
0: why then though because you talked about wanting to uh, lie in bed then in terms of the habit forming and having conflicting so i would say having conflicting priorities is different to self-sabotage and you missing your pilates appointment in the morning because you're scrolling through your phone i would Mm. see that as a form of subconscious self-sabotage because in your and this is what I don't understand in your mind you want to do it you've set yourself the target set yourself the goal of saying I want to do this whatever it might be right Mm -hmm. just say it is doing Pilates in the morning why then does does your does your mind difference between the mind and the brain so what does your mind
1: then say no you're going to lie in bed and doom scroll on your phone Yeah, well, I mean, that is a that is a competing interest as well, because doom scrolling is a competing interest is something that you want to also do. It is sabotaging, though, because you also want to go to Pilates. The brain doesn't like change. The brain, you know, we're making 35,000 decisions every single day. And if we had to consciously make each and every one of those decisions, we'd be so exhausted, which is why we have habits, but also why our brain loves to automate things. It loves to preserve energy. So, When you make a change in your life, it's going to take time and energy and effort. And your brain's like, yo, I'm over here making thirty five thousand decisions. Let's just keep doing what we've been doing, because that's way easier than having to actually get up, navigate to getting to Pilates, doing this new thing altogether or doing something other than the less cognitively challenging thing, which is just sitting here and entertaining myself, getting a hit of dopamine and we don't have to exert too much energy to do that. So unless we're creating habits out of stuff, we're going to have these moments of where our brain's like, hey, 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 let's just hang out here and and not change anything.
0: So does that mean that that procrastination is a subconscious form of us avoiding that stress of having to do something that's a little bit uncomfortable?
1: Yeah, and that uncomfortable can be because it's too big, because we don't believe that we can do it or it's too small and boring, or we really don't want to do it. But yeah, (laughs) we're essentially just putting it off, right? (laughs) You talked a
0: little bit about sort of, well, before we go into this, because I do want to, the the habit forming thing that I was very interested in is the fact that the 21 days to form a habit is rubbish. And that was pulled out of supposedly thin air. And it's actually an average of 66 days. Yes. And I was watching a video this morning doom scrolling on my phone and on social media and the Jim Shark dude was talking about 66 days of forming a habit. And then I'm reading I was reading your book as well and I was like 66 days I'm like suddenly it's the 66 days is, is the <laughs> Yours is obviously formed on on science. But I found that really interesting It's 66 mm. on average. So on 18, average, there was an yes. average of 18 days to eight months but 66
1: six days is the average it's the average and 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 I want to preface here that this is only one study that showed this right and so we've got a lot more learning to do we do have other evidence you know to show that it might take someone three to four months to create a new habit which is sort of around like that you know or 10 weeks is 66 days so yes it's an average now you can hack the system because the easier the oh, habit okay. is I'm yeah, writing this down. Right. How do I write? Yeah, let's <laughs> hack.
0: All right, I'm all. I'm all off for a i I love it.
1: Look, yeah. If you're anything like me, you're like, I don't want my habits to have happened tomorrow. Like, I'd want to wake up and just have them there, please. I don't want to yeah, wait. Magic wand.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Give okay. i Is
0: it? Ken is at the ready. What
1: is this hack? I'm ready to write I this love down. This. <laughs> all right I'm the, not kidding it's here. I, I know, right. it I can see it's hilarious I mean it's in the book but write it down as well okay how firstly how habitual you are as a person is going to affect how long it takes to that that's not a hot tip you can't change that part in yourself one of the hot biggest hot tip is the smaller or the simpler that the behavior you're trying to change the quicker it's going to develop And the research showed this big range, right? There's 18 days to 254 days to create a new habit. The 18 days were the the group that were just having to drink a glass of water with their breakfast, easy, whereas the guys that took nearly a year to create a habit, they were asked to do 50 push ups. So, of course, that's going to take way longer to develop into this automatic subconscious behavior because it's a much more complex action than just having a glass of water. So there's that. The other thing is consistency. The more consistent you are with performing your new habit, when you're faced with the context or going back to that habit loop, there's a misconception that look, the more you repeat something, the more habitual it will get. That's only halfway true. It's actually the more you repeat something in a consistent context, which means when you face the trigger you do the habit that is what forms that beautifully strong firm neural pathway in the brain let's say like an analogy i give in my book is actually let's let's say you go to church on just the christmas let's just say the only time someone goes to church is at christmas and that only comes around once a year it's not even something that you have to, you know, do all the time it's just once a year but say you've done that 3 years in a row and then the fourth year comes along And you do something else at Christmas rather than go to church, your brain is like, "Oh, I thought, you know, Christmas equals church. And now I'm not actually sure what we do. So then the year after that, there's a choice rather than an automatic habit. There's it's Christmas time, but that neural pathway in my brain's not that strong. So I don't really know what we do now. Whereas if you consistently do the habit in response to the trigger, your brain's like, yep, Cure routine, cure routine, Q routine. And it becomes a really nice, firm neural pathway and it creates the habit quicker.
0: The thing that I was also interested in, in terms of creating new habits and the strength of the habits is diet. And you looked at the gut side of things in terms of what you ate, what people ate, which I thought was um, unusual in terms of a scientific study they don't always take into it I think it's your uh dietetics side of things as well um (laughs) which I think is well you refer to the gut as your second brain right so it is important but Mm. I was surprised to see particularly with the keto and low carb things that you were saying glucose and sugar does affect like that's your main um
1: energy reasoning
0: Yeah. yeah yeah but from a reasoning point of view as well I think you said it Glucose, self control. That was the the triggers yeah. of self control area of the brain. Yeah,
1: yes, self control. This is super fascinating because self control is something that we depend on. So self control, willpower. You know, it can be used interchangeably. We depend so much on our willpower, and I think this is where we often go wrong when we're trying to change our behaviours. We'll like say we don't want to scroll on our phone. We'll still have our phone right next to us. And we'll be like, I'm not going to touch that. It's like I'm going to come home and I'm not going to eat the cookie. The cookie is dead to me. It's like, no, no, your neural pathways are like going to charge straight for the cookie. So the idea is that we're trying to create an environment where we don't need to use our self control so much. So here are the things that deplete our self control. Think of it like a bank account and there's things that are debiting and crediting your bank account of self-control all day long the things that deplete your self-control is not sleeping very much or having poor sleep being hungry or hangry having food around that you're trying to resist so being like like trying to self-regulate through that having an uncomfortable conversation or feeling icky emotions things that are frustrating you like traffic or screaming children or uh deadlines a big pile of emails like you know demands on you, but also things like making too many decisions, taking initiative, like literally all day long, we are using up our self-control. The things that replenish that self-control are things like taking periodic breaks throughout the day, like 10 minutes in every hour, meditation, a really good night's sleep, rest, and carbohydrates, (laughs) glucose.
0: (laughs) If you're using with the, um, in terms of Wait, so this is interesting in terms of the weight loss being low carb and also keto which then uses fat as an energy source does then that mean that there's a link between are you saying people that on the keto diet have less self-control that's my question <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you know i actually don't think so because I know that the body is creating carbohydrates, you know, from the process of ketogenesis. So although you're not consuming carbohydrates, you, there, there are still carbohydrates being used as a fuel source and it could be like the transformation of fat or whatever the body's doing. Right. I can't, can't remember the, the physiology exactly right now, but I think at the beginning stages where you're reducing your carb intake and you're not at that stage in ketosis, Yes, you have less self-control. Because you're in the hangry stage. You're just hangry. Very hangry. It's true. It's icky times.
0: (laughs) And that's why we hit that. My husband's correct. Oh, no. Did he say this to
1: you? Oh my gosh. No, I just, you know, I have to warn him when I'm getting hangry. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's a thing. It's funny. When my husband sees me grizzly, he was like, do you want a snack? I'm like, do I look like I need a snack? He's like, yes, please take the snack. He will even pack snacks. If we go on a road trip, he'll count how many hours it is. He's like, yep, this many snacks. I need it.
0: (laughs) I'll say to my husband, like, I'll be like, oh, I'm getting hungry. And he's like, oh, okay, we'll try and find a cafe or something for out. And I'm like, (laughs) a couple of minutes will go by and I'm like, I'm, I'm I'm getting like hangry and he knows I've got five minutes. Yikes. Five minutes to get some food into her.
1: <laughs> I hope he delivers. Like I hope, it's so funny, a friend of mine was telling me the other day that her husband has stashed all these like secret chocolate pockets all over the house and whenever she's feeling a bit grizzly, he'll just like go over and pull a bit of chocolate out and he's like, here you go, and he just knows that it'll just perk her up. Oh, I think, uh, I think
0: my husband might need to level up a little
1: bit in terms of his snack game then. <laughs> right. Everybody listening, level up. <laughs> what
0: is the difference between people that fail and that are successful in regards to the habit? Uh, what's the, like the main difference? Because there's consistency, okay, I understand that. But at some point if people are failing, that consistency is not there. But hmm. then there are people that are that are succeeding. So without consistency being the issue, if you remove that, what's the
1: main thing that makes people fail? I think it's their values. I work with so many people who will say something like, yeah, like, Oh, I want to, I just, I want to stop eating chocolate. And then when we get down to it, they realize, actually, I don't want to stop eating chocolate. I just want to change my relationship with chocolate. And so I think we sometimes set goals that we don't actually care about they're not intrinsically motivated things they're things that we're doing because there's some challenge on like a 30-day challenge or because a friends doing it or because our partner said it was a good idea or there's a workplace event going on so we can like get like swiped into it when when we sit back and go do I actually care about this it's like no I don't take journaling I do not like journaling But i know the research says it's very good for us (laughs) but i you will (laughs) never find me journaling because i just i don't like it i i i don't know what to talk about i'm like it's weird talking to myself and i'm writing it down my writing's so messy i can't read it anyway like there's all these things right i'm just not gonna do it and i'm okay with that Well, you're a doctor. Messy writing comes for the territory, doesn't it? <laughs> Thanks. That's exactly what I tell myself. But actually, you know a few years ago, it was during COVID actually, I wanted to start a gratitude journal. Gratitude journaling, I'm okay with because it's like a few words, right? It's not like dear diary. So I'm okay with that. And I started doing it and it's not because I'm not a grateful person. I'm actually a very grateful, very optimistic person. I just wanted to do the practice of gratitude journaling. And I just could not, for the life of me, get myself to do it. I was like, like, what are the barriers? I do not understand. And then, I, like a couple of years later, I came across a study that outlined very objectively all the results that you can get from gratitude journaling. And it was literally like all my happy keywords. It was like, better sleep, reduced inflammation, greater connections with like loved ones, blah, blah, blah. blah. And it hit the things that I intrinsically cared about it the the rewards were worth it for me and I've been gratitude journaling ever since the day I read that study and uh, it's easy it's an easy habit for me to do I also have support right like a lot of people aren't in a supportive environment it becomes difficult to say eat really well when the your household doesn't appreciate that or doesn't allow for that so you're now constantly exposed to all this other type of food that you don't want to be having. So that is also a big thing. Our environment plays a really big role in why our habits either stick or don't.
0: Mm. As someone who also has messy handwriting, I also I also heard that messy handwriting is a sign of higher intelligence, so I'm just going to leave that with you. <laughs>
1: I've I'm writing that one. I love this because I've also seen it as a symptom of ADHD. So I'm like, I will well, take. Well, I am
0: pretty. Yeah, I've, I'm pretty sure that I actually do
1: have ADHD. That's why Me I'm writing too. as you're speaking. So if <laughs> I, I try not to interrupt you. <laughs> Oh no. Interrupt away. Oh my gosh, you're so funny. Us two, we're going to just be two spicy sisters like interrupting I each know. other but we but neither of us will care cuz you'll be like, "Oh, this is actually way more interesting." So let's talk about that.
0: <laughs> I I saw a thing the other day and this is probably so in line with the podcast because it was talking about neurospicy people mm. and they were like they get, they get frustrated in terms of social situations cuz they find um like a small talk, really frustrating, right? Deal. and yes. so <laughs> it did. It did sort of resonate with the podcast because a lot of it's overcoming adversity and stuff. So it's very much mm-hmm. like, hi, my name's Fiona. Tell me about your trauma.
1: <laughs> oh my god! Did you have a moment where, like, any sort of existential crisis where you're like, oh my gosh, my entire interest is actually because of my neurospicy brain?
0: Yes. Now, I must say, I'm not formally <laughs> diagnosed, but everything that I have seen, in, and I've taken like the <laughs> online tests and stuff, but everything that I've seen online yeah. about it is me to a T. And I've been sending yeah. them to my husband, and my husband's like, um, <laughs> "That's just pretty categorical. You've got ADHD. Okay.
1: You and I are living the same life because I did the exact same thing. And the thing with ADHD symptoms, right, is that everybody could tick them all off, but it's the magnitude that they happen, the frequency in which they happen, and how much they impact your life. So I have a plant lady. Who has a plant lady? I do. My plant lady knows me by name because I cannot for the life of me keep a plant alive. And she's like, Gina, I have given you plants that don't even need any light, they need watering at once a month. Like, what are you what doing? Cactus? Pretty much a cactus. And I still, I still, could, I'm glad you can't see it because you'd be like, you're like, you're intentional about killing that plant. I'm not. I have to go down there like every few <laughs> weeks and be like, hi, Sally. I'm, she's like, yeah, I got them in the corner for you. Like she just knows. So there was that. And then there's like the floor closet. I've definitely got a floor closet. Yeah. 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 Small talk. It's just why I had the biggest grocery like pile the other day, and I'm at this the self checkout, and my husband Mitch is like, "Babe, why don't you why don't you go to the person he can do it for you?" I was like, "Oh no, because he's gonna ask me how my day is, and I don't want to have that kind of small talk with anybody."
0: <laughs>
1: Hilarious! Oh, so funny. <laughs> I like you know you know the parts of the year that I hate the most is like the new year because it was like every email starts with happy new year I hope you had a great holiday I'm like can we cut to the chase (laughs) like why are you saying this to me you don't care actually at all (laughs) we sound like we're evil Fiona
0: no it's just a
1: different wiring of the brain and I have worked with (laughs) I've I've
0: managed teams that are um overseas so culturally very different and so they're very Mm. much um uh relationship focused and family focused yeah. and that all comes first between uh before business whereas i'm and particularly busy i'm like yeah. right like what's going on with this and the amount yeah. of mental concentration and energy yeah. to be like how how is we weekend oh. and it sounds awful <laughs> no, but I know. it's an and that is, a, that is a thought process that you have to go to, okay, I actually mm. have to ask them how they are in the small talk beforehand because mm. it's important to them. But it's yeah. not important to me, whereas I'm like, it's powwow. Oh, well. it's, and it's, it is. And I'm interested mm. in terms of the research between, because you talk about dopamine mm. and the link between dopamine and habit forming. And I was interested in terms of have there been studies with ADHD people and their relationship between habit forming when their dopamine is lower and Low. everybody if you have a neurospicy person in your life go give them a big hug because <laughs> ah. we're not evil we just are a little <laughs> wired a bit differently
1: <laughs> we love hard know. yeah we do we love hard we feel so deeply <laughs> we do we're very sensitive souls
0: we actually you know, are we're laughing we but are. we actually are
1: very sensitive, yeah. It's so true. I had an email this morning from like a grizzly bear person who if you're listening to this, I'm sorry I called you grizzly bear, but I did feel like you were a little grizzly in your email. Nah, stuff him. Stuff him. Yeah, that's Deserved what my husband it. said. The email was like, your book is just a copy of Atomic Habits. Uh like shame on you for not crediting him and I was like, listen, buddy i have like there's like 10 pages worth of references in my book i'm a researcher it's against my code of conduct to not reference someone else's work and by the way the reason i wrote my book is because i wanted evidence-based content out there from a habit researcher like all the power to james clear he's done amazingly with this book like dude i collapsed to him but he's a journalist i'm not quoting his anyway my husband was like babe, this is your first hater. This is a win. We need to celebrate. I'm like, what do you yeah. mean? I yeah. am shook. Like my heart was racing. I reacted. Like I wrote an email and I kept it in my app box because I didn't want to send it yet. But, oh, I was so sensitive. And look, we've completely digressed because this is what our neurobrains do. This is what we
0: do. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I said to you, there are no set questions. It's a
1: conversation. <laughs> I'm so glad. I really am so glad. Oh my gosh. What did you ask? No. (laughs) I can't even
0: remember.
1: No, it's about ADHD again. (laughs) Okay. okay. And habits and dopamine. 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 Okay. So, ADHD is essentially a diagnosis where someone has less dopamine than somebody who, with a neurotypical brain. Dopamine drives our motivation. It drives our pleasure. It drives our anticipation and it drives our like it makes us like want to get up and do something. So when you've got a task that you really don't want to do, it's actually dopamine that helps you to, to get up and do it because it's anticipating a potential reward. People with neurospicy brains don't have as much dopamine. And so the drive to get up and do something isn't as strong. We also may not, ex- and we say, I say we, because I actually am hundred percent sure I've got ADHD. I have a preliminary diagnosis. My psychologist, when well, I did the test and she's like, so you scored on the 99th percentile for someone with ADHD. I was like, <laughs> whoa i was like, like that's harsh i'm like you could have just said hi like i would have been totally fine with like 70 percent, 75 give me a maybe." she mate, had to give you the 99 99 i was like i'm fruity as f like what in the world how
0: <laughs> devastating is it that you realize that you don't actually have a personality they're just
1: all adhd I, traits literally i actually went through this crisis fiona legitimately i was i called my best friend and i was like babe I feel like I don't know myself. I am a statistic. I am, I mean, my whole life is written in a list in a textbook under the title ADHD. Like I thought I was just spontaneous, but no, I'm just fruity. Like I'm just spicy. (laughs) I think we need to go get like chilli tattoos or something and really claim it, like be proud of our spiciness. I think so. I'll have to get the formal diagnosis too,
0: but I'm sure I'm probably 99 percentile as well.
1: Yeah, a 100%. Okay, so back to dopamine. So, what happens with people with ADHD? Oh, I think our listeners have lost the like, they no, no, they're loving it. The they're part. laughing along with us. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, I hope so. I haven't even had coffee. Okay, is we will, we will take, we need a few more repetitions for that neural pathway to become ingrained because we don't like consistency. We don't like repetition. We don't like routines. Generally, we like spontaneity, and that rigidity of when this happens, I do that. Like when seven a.m. comes, I go to Pilates. Doesn't work. I, I, we, we don't. It doesn't really. We don't really like that. So what happened? Because also, we don't have as much attention towards things. So we might write all our goals down in a diary, and then forget to look at that diary ever again. Oh, I'm a great goal setter. I'm a fat. Yeah. Quick- gold medal goal setter (laughs) how are your goals going this year by the way yeah not great yeah not great (laughs) do you remember them could you recite them um I do I'll tell you offline what they are but yes (laughs) have you have you made any like steps towards any of them this is not a judgmental question it's actually
0: um I have I have on the business ones cool Mm. great and that's why I was interested in regards to the self-sabotaging with the goals Mm. and stuff because yeah It was, it's interesting in terms of, uh, habits and people and life and Mm. everything. And I think it's not an uncommon situation. I was having this conversation with another, with a mate of mine yesterday, talking about self-sabotaging. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Classic so people with ADHD I think they they struggle a little bit more to create new habits but we can break habits much easier and much quicker now there isn't like really hardcore empirical evidence yet but it is an area of research where more and more evidence is coming out and I have a feeling it's going to be my next book hey like I mean I'm still coming off the trauma of publishing the first book (laughs) so I have to come back to that idea later in life but the reason why it's also harder to create new habits is we get distracted, but we also, we have a change of game plan. We change potentially our intentions or our focuses. Like, do you know how many hobbies I have that have died? Like hundreds, hundreds. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yep, same. And they're all very expensive ones.
1: They are. It's I've got a bow and arrow because I took up archery. <laughs> My agent calls me Xena. So now I answer the phone with like, oh, yeah, yeah even though i haven't done archery for a long time <laughs> i also have fire poise but i i singed my hair once and this is expensive hair so i was like well that's done like i only did it maybe outdoor. twice but i yeah. still have them and my husband's like why don't we do you want to sell these i'm like no babe like i'm a fire twirler can't sell these i might come back to it one day it'll come <laughs> back it's uh, worth money probably will come back that's the i can't tell you where 20 years yeah literally. so we have these you know we're just a bit more spontaneous but we can still build routines and habits within that for example i get up and most mornings i'll train like i'll i'll move my body somehow i can't tell you what i'm gonna do tomorrow but i'll know when i'm starting so it'll be pilates it could be boxing it could be just like walking my dog it'll always be a different activity but the routine and the habit of getting up and moving is the same. And I'm okay with that. It's the same with breakfast. Like most people eat the same breakfast every day. I do not. I, I I don't know what I'm going to have tomorrow. It'll literally be like, what do I feel like? Or it's the closest thing to me. It could be leftovers. Who knows? (laughs) But I still have the same routine of always eating breakfast
0: you find that a nutritious breakfast does not actually have to come or a meal, nutritious meal does not actually have to come in a form of a completely made meal? I eat uh, uh, some grapes and cheese and a bit of cold chicken out of the, you know, cooked chook out of the fridge and whatever.
1: Does that make up a food? You're so (laughs) spicy, Fiona. You're so, you're you're 10 spices. That does make a whole meal. And I eat like that very often, actually. Very often, yeah. It's like a two-year-old's because, dinner. Yeah, but think Thanks. of it like a macronutrients. It's like we got the carbs, the protein, the fats, and it's it's a meal. Your your body doesn't know that. It's just happy with the macronutrients and the energy that you're giving it. It doesn't have to be like whoa. You can't mix that with that. Sure, you can.
0: Yeah, and plus, I'm
1: <laughs> saving time on cooking. Exactly, and I and dishes because I'm eating it straight out of the fridge. <laughs> don't go that far I do
0: <laughs> is there a difference between the success or the how difficult it is to form a habits between men
1: and women it, in my experience it is easier for men to create habits than women and there's various reasons for that I think women uh, carry a lot more mental load and so we, we might not be as focused. Men seem to be a lot more structured and a lot more like, I just do this. And they're not as, uh, I guess, moved around or swayed by emotions or by events. Whereas women, you know, we might get up and plan to do something and we feel bloated or we watched a really sad movie and we're really sad and now we don't wanna do that thing anymore or our hormones are like doing their thing. So yes, I do think men tend to be a lot more um, systematic. And I certainly found that in my own research. I'm yet to see like really big studies that prove this. But honestly, like I've been working in the habit change space for like 13, 15 years and I it's been a consistent pattern.
0: So ladies, you can, <clears throat> you know, give yourself a bit of grace in terms of when you're failing yeah, in your habits. Absolutely. Have Sorry, I was going to ask, you mentioned hormones. Have there been any mm. studies done around habit forming and the impact on hormones and therefore menopausal women?
1: They have. It's things like we you know we're more prone to like online shopping behaviors when we're PMSing or we struggle a bit more to to stick to healthy habits when say we're going through a perimenopause or menopause because we're not sleeping as well we're not feeling the same we might be experiencing depression anxiety more stress stress is kryptonite for habit development our habits do not like stress because stress uses a huge amount of cognitive energy and so the brain is like I'm already dealing with all the stress I don't have capacity to try this like healthy new diet you're trying to put me on like not gonna happen so yes it I do find things tend to fall off the wagon a little bit when we're going through those big hormonal shifts but it's also temporary it's until we find our flow you know we might get just get a bit more used to the, the new rhythms of life. And then we can slowly get back into it. Also life changes, right? Like we might not have as much capacity as we did before. So our goals need to change with that. We need to, I think, change the goalposts. Is motivation a myth? <laughs> what about, what exactly about motivation? Because motivation's a thing, but I think the way we use motivation is Okay. Is well, how inaccurate. are we meant to use it to how, we meant to,
0: how am I meant to use the fact that I want to I get to the gym every day, mm-hmm. but then I don't go to the gym every day? <laughs> how do I get to the point where there is motivation there that's actually um,
1: doing something? So the myth here is that you're waiting to be motivated to take action when actually motivation comes as a result of action. There are so many times where I have not wanted to work out, but I've reminded myself the reason I work out is because it helps my mental health. And that's an important priority and a value in my life. And as soon as I think of that, I'm like out the door, like nothing can stop me. Well, actually, lots of things can stop me. Humidity, rain, weather, hunger. But you get the point, like I'm much more motivated to go. But once I'm there, even when I enter the gym, I'm not like, yeah, I'm so pumped. I'm not. I have to be maybe five, 10 minutes into my workout and then I'm motivated to keep going. And so the the myth here is that we wait to feel motivated when we actually need to take action without feeling like it. We don't, we're not going to want to do it, but you kind of do it anyway. See, so this is the thing
0: that I struggle with. How do you get from the wanting to do
1: it to, to the actual action of doing it? <laughs> so you, you create you make it so easy for yourself that you feel like you can't say no to doing it so let's take working out you want to do something you enjoy so you actually have to plan for something you like maybe create accountability so tell a friend that you're going to meet them there <laughs> or make it so small right so small as in decide I'm going to get up and I'm going to do a five-minute walk Have your active wear right by your bed so that you get up and it's just there straight away. Or if you say, want to watch like a trashy TV show, say to yourself, I can only watch that if I'm on the stationary bike or I'm on the treadmill. So you can stack it with things that you want to do. And then you create barriers for the things that you don't want to do. But you know, it takes, if you do something so small that you can't say no to doing it and you focus on the consistency of that, then you can build the habit on that. I worked with a, a guy, I call him Gary, and Gary hadn't an exercised for like twenty plus years, and he really wanted to get some activity going on. And he just said to, he was like, "I'm so overwhelmed at the idea of exercising." Understandably, it's been a long time. So I said to him, "Why don't you just start with putting your shoes on? Just for the first week, it's all I want you to do is just put your sneakers on. That's it." He was like, "I could do that." So he did that, and then the week later, he walked out to his letterbox and back, which he also hadn't done for a long time, and then walked down the street. He got curious what was around the corner and so on and so forth, until he entered himself into a 10-kilometer race. I remember catching up with him a year later and he was like, Gina, if you said to me, I want you to enter a 10-kilometer race and that's going to motivate you to exercise, I would have walked out of your office and left a really bad review on Google. But you gave me something that I knew was so easy, and I built the habit like I stacked it on top of that. And that is how we create. Yeah, that's how we take action on the things that, you know, feel big. We just don't really want to do them. We're struggling to start.
0: Okay. So just putting your active wear on around the house doesn't count. I've actually got to get to the gym.
1: You can start with putting your activewear on, (laughs) but eventually, Fiona, you need to get out the door. (laughs) But do something you like. If you don't like the gym, don't don't go to the gym.
0: (laughs) I don't like exercising at all in general. So, you
1: know, find something you like, maybe something that doesn't feel like exercise. Like, I don't know, hiking, dancing. Mm. Whatever you, whatever you're into. I booked myself into these Pilates classes where if you don't show up, so you can't cancel them to anytime like two hours before the session starts, you can't cancel it. And if you don't show up, they charge you an extra $10. It irks me. So I'm like, gotta go. Because I can't just wake up and be like, I don't feel like going. It's like, nah, I don't want to spend another $10. <laughs> I've got to go. You got that
0: external accountability.
1: <laughs> yes. Mm. <laughs> I also remember how good I feel every time I do it, and I think it's focusing on that too. Focusing no, it's external accountability. Diet. It's the ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's so true. And because I'm neurotic, no and I, you. come on. Yeah, I get you're it. right. All right, I'm trying to be all like sciencey and noble, but you're right. It's exactly that. It's I don't want to yeah. fail, and it's a fail if I don't know. <laughs> Why do goals matter so much? Goals help us. I think when done well, goals can help to direct our attention, direct our focus. They help us to persevere when life throws hurdles at us, which it will. And it all, goals also give us a greater sense of achievement when we've achieved something. Like say you go to the gym four days a week. Great, you'll feel awesome. But say you planned to go four days a week and then you did go four days a week. You're gonna feel extra awesome for doing that because now you've also achieved a goal. So goals, also direct, you know, with the perseverance part, life, like setbacks are going to happen to all of us. I hear, I heard Brene Brown once say, it's not if you fall, it's when you fall. And I remember thinking at the time, girlfriend, you haven't met me. Like, um, I'm gonna, I'm going to be just fine. But no, she's right. <laughs> I fall all the time. We all do. And, you know, the the whole idea around that is Oh my gosh, I literally lost my train of thought. I feel like you're making me more ADHD than I normally am. Goals. Sorry, no goals. Why do goals matter? <laughs> goals, this is why goals, I write goals. things down. Yes. Thank you, perseverance. Goals will help to direct you and they keep you on the course. Otherwise, it's a, you know you forget, you don't have the mindfulness, you can just be floundering through. But the importance with goals is that you do them in an evidence-based way. You know, you, you have to... The three golden rules with goals is setting a goal is better than not setting a goal. Setting a specific goal is better than setting a fluffy goal. And setting an achievable but challenging goal is better than, you know, uh, like setting a really difficult or a big goal. How important
0: is bouncing back? It's everything. And is, th- <laughs> and is there
1: a way to bounce back properly? Yeah, there is. Bouncing back's everything because it's not it's not if, it's when we're going to need to do that. And that yeah. is literally the difference between people who continue and sustain their habits and go on to achieve success in whatever area of life, and the people that sort of just dabble in success and then pull back out and live this yo-yo life. You know, b- bouncing back is gonna happen not even just the changing our habits is a process of two steps forward one step back it's never going to be linear so if we can't bounce back when we've got that step back when we're not going to ever be moving forward so the way that we bounce back first is through self-compassion and and understanding that we're all in the same boat we all are going to have to you know experience hard things in life and push through it. And it doesn't make you a failure that you've bounced back or that you've had a setback. It's literally just that you're human. Self-compassion is a big one. We also know that the biggest changes that happen in people's lives happen from a place of self-compassion, not self-loathing. There's no point being like, oh, you missed your class again. That's another ten dollars that you've wasted. Like, no, it's okay. You know, I've had the busiest month of my life with this book launch. And although I've still been moving my body, it certainly hasn't been as much as before. And I still have to fight the thoughts like you're a habit expert girl, like you better get some exercising in. It's like, I will, but it might just look a bit different and that's okay. And I have to practice that self-compassion. The other one is scheduling. So the way that I speak about scheduling is that no matter how small the habit is that you need to just do, It's better to do something than nothing at all. If you plan to exercise and you you don't have the time or you're like late from work or the kids are sick or whatever it is, still get in your active wear at the time that you normally would and walk around the house if you have to. And that's all you need to do because then your brain still associates that time of day with exercising and you continue to strengthen that neural pathway rather than your brain like just not knowing what you do or you missing a day. So scheduling is really important. Like that's essentially the the consistency piece. I was
0: surprised to see uh, the positive affirmations in there too.
1: Oh, yes. There's a couple of things in the book that I was surprised that I speak about as a researcher. And one of them is, yeah, affirmations and the other one's visualization. But there is so much research around those things that, I think we need to pluck them out of the woo-woo space and put them in back in the science space because the evidence is pretty awesome. But affirmations are really just reframing our thoughts about ourselves and they're really helpful to, I guess, shape the way that we think about ourselves. This something in our brain called the reticular activation system and it's like such a geeky science word but we'll call it the RAS and the RAS essentially it's a network of neurons located in the brain stem and it sort of directs our attention so say you buy a white I don't know like a white Mercedes and you start driving around the road and you're like oh my gosh there's so many white Mercedes around there aren't any more white Mercedes. You're just noticing them more. Or like if you're in a crowded room, you could hear your name, even though you're in, like there's all this noise around, because the reticular activating system is what's giving, it's what's telling you what's important to pay attention to. We don't pay attention to everything in our environment. We will only pick things up that we've primed our brain to tell it. This is important, this is meaningful, and these are the things that I notice. And with affirmations, if we say to ourselves things like, I'm healthy, I'm worthy, I eat food that is nourishing to my body, I'm strong, I'm capable, all those things, our brain will start noticing and almost like confirming all the reasons why that those affirmations are real, rather than that negative self-talk of, oh, I failed again, and then your brain going, well, I'm gonna notice now all the times that you do fail, and confirm to you why you're just going to keep failing. So we essentially, our brain gives us more of what we focus on. Hmm.
0: Because always been seen, it, it has been very much uh, in that scientific woo-woo. word here, woo woo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um. that it's always been a little bit sort of out there and not very practical. Mm. And, you know, it's more hip, hippie side of things in terms of yeah. Old school thinking. So yeah. that I was surprised to see that. Why was this research on habit forming so revolutionary?
1: Ooh, you know, habits have only been researched for like the last sort of decade plus, which is wild because so, you know, up to 70% of what we do is habitual. The reason why it's so revolutionary is that our habits play a pivotal role in our life our habits tell a story of our life they tell a story of who we are what we value it it almost like aligns the decisions that we've made throughout the last few chapters of our years and so the research around habits to to have the empowerment to actually be able to change our habits is being able to change our entire life. Because if we can't change our subconscious behaviors, which makes up the majority of what we do, then we're not actually gonna make any meaningful changes to our life. And I think that's why the the power of habits is, if we can't change our habits, we, we can't make meaningful changes. I think that's why it's so revolutionary. Because once we understand the theory and the practice of habits, we can apply it to any area of our life. If it's health, finances, you know, relationships, it doesn't matter what it is, everything is impacted by our habits. And I know I'm biased, but it's also true. Was
0: this the first race, like, um, I don't know you for, I don't know the clinical term, blind study or whatever, you had the three groups. Was it the first study of its time on habits? no.
1: There were other studies but not many. And yeah. what I did actually is one of my studies is I compiled all the studies that had been done in habits like randomized control trials in this space. I was looking at weight management at the time and I put mm-hmm. them all together in a study what's called a meta-analysis, which is essentially gathering all the research, like high-quality evidence that's been done on a particular study and then finding like the, the the greater outcomes. And I think there were four other studies altogether.
0: What do you think, if you were to summarise everything down from the research and what we've spoken about today, what do you think would be the main takeaway that someone is, that's trying to build a new habit they're wanting to hit their goals,
1: hmm.
0: apart from focusing on the three so it's not so overwhelming, which is, <laughs> I was surprised about the three is a max. What do you think is the main takeaway that people should, A, take away from the Habit Revolution book, but also out of the conversation
1: today? Remember that you are not stuck with your brain, that you have the power to rewire your brain. Yeah, that you can create new habits. You can shake things up. You can break old habits. You can teach an old dog new tricks. Our brains are constantly rewiring and we create stronger habits from the things we consistently do and we break habits by stopping doing the things that we don't want to do our brain literally goes through something called synaptic pruning where it's plucking out like the the neural pathways that we no longer using so it falls away and becomes no longer part of our life we shape our own reality like you know there's a quote i love and it says we are our own potters because we make our habits and then our habits make us. And I think that is the most empowering thing that I can share with something is you're not stuck with your brain.
0: Apart from uh getting the book, The Habit Revolution, which they can get from where I know it's a Murdoch everywhere. book, but where can it yeah. everywhere?
1: <laughs> it's everywhere at the moment. So it's like into Target, Kmart, Big W, Booktopia, QBD. It's on Amazon? Audible, Amazon. Yes, if you right. want to hear my voice for eight hours, you can get it on there. That's oh, on you read it? You do it yourself?
0: Ah, oh, fabulous! What
1: a mission that was. Uh, it's, it's in a lot of the indie bookstores. But if you jump on my website, which is drginacleo.com, and you click on book, I've actually got a, a bit of a list of the places that sell the book. So you can just link straight from there.
0: Apart from reading what is, I think, an incredible book, Where can people can access more of the work that you're working on now? You mentioned some courses before.
1: Yeah, oh, thank you. So I run a free Habit Masterclass, which is a five-day course that you get sent into your inbox. So if you jump on my website, you'll see that there. I also run habit change courses. Doing that by the way, I'm going to sign up after this. Yes, sign up, do it. It's really good. (laughs) I think it's really good. It's actually, I did the course. I'm pretty sure I recorded it before I had braids. So people are like, you look so young. (laughs) I'm like, I'll take that (laughs) as a compliment, I think. (laughs) You do look young anyway, you're gorgeous. (laughs) Oh, Fiona, thanks. If you jump on my website, I've got two different courses. So there's... The habit change institute which i run and that is a train the trainer type course so i train coaches doctors psychologists allied health professionals mentors teachers any if you work in this in the place where you help other people with their habit change or their behaviors that's the course for you and then i also run another course called creating healthy habits that is for everyday people who are interested in you know changing their own habits understanding a bit more about themselves. Now that second course I want to preface is on a friend's platform. My friend Glenn McIntosh. I will have you know my very own course on my website soon. It watch (laughs) this place. Yeah, watch this (laughs) place. I'll link
0: your website and your socials and stuff in the show notes of this episode, so everyone can have access to that. Thank Dr. Gino Cleo, it has been absolutely <laughs> pleasure. I love talking to another
1: neuro spicy uh, lady as well. So good. I mean, we've self-diagnosed, but I think we're pretty spot on too. I think, yes. as evidenced by this conversation.
0: <laughs> well, the listeners are used to it. These are usually how the conversations are with me.
1: Good, good.
0: Well, you know, you've got to keep everybody on their toes, so it's fine. Yay, it's agree. been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. You
1: too. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome to chat with you.
0: The One Moment, Please podcast.
1: Yeah.